One year, I wanted to make a point to beat my company's basketball fantasy league without the most popular players. I was an NBA junkie, and I wanted to prove to myself how well I knew the players, the systems they played in, and how I could take advantage of their strengths on my roster. I did tie for first place, and I was happy that I did it without the most popular players. However, I did get a lot of help from bloggers, beat writers, and analysts. The public disclosure around basketball might be more robust now than it, it has ever been. To some degree, all self-styled smart fans have a little bit of scouting and analysts in them. This is why I try to learn from insiders in the industry. Trying to observe and understand the game from their viewpoint, this is why I think video coordinators fascinate me. Video coordinators are responsible for providing coaches, players, and the front office with film broken down for analysis. They're responsible for assisting coaches with preparing for upcoming opponents, going over their own film, and assisting the front office with draft preparations. This is why we're excited to chat with our guest, Modako, which you may know him from the jump ball. And as a fun fact, Jamal Crawford gave him a shout out when he won six man of the year back in 2014. I'm Justin Keonan. I'm Ray LeBeau. And welcome to the Basketball Intelligence Podcast. Bro, what are you talking about, man? They made up a term called analytics. Take that for data. Today we have a very special guest, Mo Dockle, who has a very extensive history working in and around the NBA. For several years was the video coordinator for the Spurs and the Clippers, including several years as the lead video coordinator for the Clippers. You also probably know him from The Jump Ball, his uh, website and blog and podcast, where um, we've all gotten the benefit of, of his insights. So welcome, Mo. Oh, thanks, Ray. Thank you for having me. Oh, great to have you, and I look forward to our conversation. Uh, since you were uh, so active as a video coordinator, uh, recently, there was a story about how film review has been so helpful to Victor Oladipo in his um, new digs with the Pacers. And it raised in my mind a question as to um, how often and to what extent is uh, video helpful to players? And it, does it depend significantly on their willingness or their interest um, does it depend on their learning style? Does it depend on um, their diligence? What? How, how does that work in terms of being a valuable adjunct to uh, a player's development? Yeah, I mean, first off, let's start out. I'm obviously biased with all my time in the video room, but it is a fantastic tool for coaches to be able to teach players. Um, there's no, I didn't do that. You know, that's not what I did. And then you show them the film and that's exactly that. The, f the phrase, the film doesn't lie, is a very common thing we would say just to kind of say to guys when they weren't sure. It's like, well, let's just look at the film and we'll figure it out. It's a huge component in terms of development, but you have to be careful not to go overboard. Because I think you touched on it in the sense of not everybody learns that way. Not everybody's a visual learner. So I think part of coaching is figuring out the best way to reach your players. So Maybe you can, maybe you have a certain player you can do an extensive film session with and you can have, you know, 30 or 40 clips and, and, and sit there for an hour and really analyze stuff. And they're going to be locked in and focused, but then you're going to have some players whose attention isn't there or it's difficult for them to stay focused. You know, everybody's different. Every, every human being has a different brain and how it operates and how it, how it learns. So, you know, maybe you just show them three or four clips, you know, of the same thing or, things like that. It's really a very helpful tool, but coaches have to learn how to, you know, give the information to their players. 
So how would you describe that dynamic? Would you say that those sorts of cues to figuring out how to be most helpful to a player, is that pretty much on the coach? Is it on the video coordinator? Is it a collaborative effort to figure that out? I would say it's kind of a collaborative effort, including the player as well. You know, the first question when you get a new player is just, you know, what, what do you like? Like, how do you study for the games? Do you study for the games? And it's not a big deal if you don't. There are certain guys who are just, I just go out there and play. And, you know, if they have that ability and, and natural skill, that's fine. You know, you, you don't argue with it. As a video guy, like if a player was traded to us or, in training camp with new players, I would constantly ask to go to each one of them and say, this is what I do. It, you know, I like to give iPads out. There'll always be an iPad with your shots after the game. I can do more or give you less, like whatever you want. Let me know what you, what your preference is. And some guys would take me up on it and would be just like film monsters who just want, want everything, every chance you get, you know, and, and there are guys that are just not as, not as interested in it, which is fine. Doesn't make it doesn't mean they're a bad player or anything like that. But in my opinion, it helps because it's that, and it's on the coach, the video guy, and the the player to kind of figure out what's the right way to go about it. Sometimes it's an observation between the coach and the video coordinator saying, like, "Hey, these might be too long. You know, these these sessions might be too long for him. Let's let's cut it down to like five or ten clips and see what happens." And it's sometimes it's experiment luckily with the nba season you have a long 82 games you can kind of go through and 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 kind of work that out and 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 figure it out you have time to figure that out well i'd like to ask you something else about the development process Um, and that relates to something we hear a lot about with a number of teams and that's mentoring and uh sometimes you see young teams Rather than just trying to let the youngsters develop organically, kind of on the same time frame, think that there's some significant value to bringing in veterans, veterans who maybe are significantly older and maybe don't have that much game left. But uh, the theory, at least, is that they can mentor um, the young players in different aspects, maybe on the floor, maybe off the floor, et cetera. Sometimes you see it work pretty well. Sometimes you think you see it look like a, a total waste. Um, and I wonder if you had any thoughts or theories or observations in that regard. Yeah, I think it's a really, veterans are really important for young players. You know, I think just starting in that sense of on the court and off the court, there's a, you know, there are, stories of just veterans just taking the rookies, you know, on this is how you go shopping for a suit. Because you have to understand, the other thing, these rookies are coming in now at 19, 20 years old for the most part. These are, these are to be honest, they're, they're still boys. And, you know, it's a difficult transition. Now you're in a situation where you're making a couple millions of dollars, in some cases really an obscene amount of money with shoe deals and things like that. And, and, and you kind of need somebody to sort of help guide you. I think veterans help, you know, off the court, you know, and I, I, I think we saw that with Philadelphia mostly, you know, there was that run where they didn't have any veteran presence at all on the roster. And, you know, I think just Okafor got in trouble and there were, there were issues and concerns. And then they brought Elton Brandon. And although it kind of, you kind of look at it going like they're wasting a roster spot for somebody that's not going to play. 
but he's there to kind of mentor guys and talk to guys a little bit of, Hey, this is, this is life in the NBA, or these are the things you need to do to win. It's, it's the same way as bringing in players from a winning organization to a losing organization. They're going to help you build that culture. So I think there's a value in it, but you also have to be careful too. At a certain point, you still need your young guys to develop. So how much playing time do you give a vet when you're in a team in a losing situation you know, versus giving to young, young guys who can help you and you need to develop. And the most important thing is game reps. I think that's kind of the battle young teams have to figure out, you know, especially coaches who have veterans like Sacramento is a great example, which you and I talked a little bit about, you know, a while ago, it's, it's one of those things you have Zach Randolph and you have George Hill and those guys and Vince Carter guys you were brought into that can still play, but also need to mentor these guys this is a team that's not really going anywhere. They're not going to the playoffs. So how are we going to improve the development of these guys? And we're still paying ridiculous amounts of money. I don't know the contracts off the top of my head. Uh, Signs, I'm a video guy and not a front office guy. What are we doing? You know, how are we spending all this money and not getting anything out of these guys? And we're not winning. But when you you develop these young guys, it's a tough dance. Yeah. And I think what makes it even maybe more, even tougher than it might even just appear on the surface is there's pressure, and sometimes it's even subconscious, on the coach um, to win. And even when, uh, I guess, fully consciously, they would know that, hey, we're in a building developmental situation. It's really hard to kind of ignore the pressure to win. And maybe you're going to win one, two, or three more games by playing your veterans. Um, But that's at the cost, number one, of developmental time for the young players. And two, um, you know, let's take Sacramento, for example. If they win two more games this year because they gave more playing time to those veterans who supposedly were brought in for mentoring, that's going to affect their draft situation, especially two things. One, this year, this is the last year of uh, the old system. And number two, they don't have a draft choice in the first round in 2019. So if they're going to get a good draft choice, and this happens to be a year where we're really top in the draft, you know, what what does it gain you to pick up a couple more wins and maybe not be quite in the as good an advantageous um, a draft position? And you've cost developmental time. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough position as a coach, right? Because there's no coach goes into games going like we're trying to lose and there's not and no matter what even coaches that are in tanking situations they want to win these guys are competitive beyond all belief more so than i even would say players like i've seen it from coaches where it's like these guys are super competitive so i think it's a tough tough situation and you're right like with sacramento every win actually hurts them in the long run but my the one thing i would say is a, a win you know, the hardest thing in the league is learning how to win. So even though it hurts them in the long run, it also develops your young guys because learning how to win in the NBA is extremely difficult. And you see it with young teams. Young teams will build a big lead against a team and down the stretch, they'll start turning the ball over. They'll relax a little bit. They'll get loose. And then that veteran team comes in and takes the win. That sounds, so like, last, a process. That sounds like last year's Timberwolves. Yeah, well, I mean, that was every game with them, it felt like, last year. <laughs> but we saw, we saw it just this past, you know, last weekend, 
with Philadelphia and Golden State. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia races to like a 24-point lead. This is a relatively young team, and they, they blow that lead. Then on Wednesday, just before Thanksgiving, they build a big lead against, against uh, Portland, but they're able to hold it. Like, there's a learning process to it. Yeah, so but, of course, think, but of course, Portland isn't Golden State. But I'm just throwing that in. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. But there's that mentality of, you know, we were watching it with a buddy of mine, and it's like, hey, Philly does give up leads. So right. they're a young team. You can, you can get back into it. And I think so, that's the thing. Teams that have veterans and young guys, even though winning hurts you lottery chances, I think it helps to teach how to win and how to win in the NBA. So uh, related uh, issue related to young players, um, we've heard a lot of people opining um, whether they really have anything to say or not on uh, rookies and whether uh, they're being successful or whether they label them as busts. And sometimes we see these sorts of characterizations happen very, very early in somebody's rookie year. Um, How much time should we give rookies before putting that kind of label on them? I mean, it's really, it's really asinine to label somebody a bust when we haven't even hit December. You know, like that's just uh, somebody who just got drafted. It takes a long time to develop and there's no roadmap. There's no, this is where you should be year one. This is where you should be year two and year three and so on. You know, that's, that's the hope you can set up a roadmap and hope you get there. But so many things change in a year and half of these guys Right. Don't they don't even have they're not even done growing as a physical body. I mean, Brandon Ingram came into the league and he's a stick figure. Like I sit there and I'm just like, can somebody feed him some butter or something like he needs to put (laughs) something on him? He's just skin and bones. Now he's gotten better this year, you know, but last year everybody was quick to label him a bust. He doesn't got it. We don't think he has it. So, man, the kid's 19 and he's still trying to figure out his body forget all the off court stuff just on the court still trying to figure out his body and things like that and how to move and maneuver and on top of that he has to grow develop he has to develop his body he has to add some weight he has to add some strength and it's the same thing with with Lonzo Ball now who's who's I don't even I mean he's struggling but he's not struggling he's just not shooting well but he does a great job rebounding he defends and things like that people want to label him a bust already. And it's just saying like, look guys, like this stuff takes time. The NBA is hard. And at 19, I don't know what, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but at 19, I'm not, I wouldn't have been ready to play anything. Prof- I wouldn't have been able to do anything professionally, whether it's podcasting or any of my basketball work, or, you know, the only thing I could probably handle at 19 was working in the movie theater, which I did, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the stuff we kind of forget is that these guys, they're their kids. Yeah. It's still 19, 20 years old. And like in the old days, you know, we would draft these guys as juniors and seniors. And then it's by 25, 26. You're like, okay, this is who they are. I'm not saying we need to wait till they're 25 or 26, but we can at least wait till they can have a legal drink. Well, there's so many aspects of uh, basketball, whether it's uh, watching a team grow or watching, you know, patience is a huge word that often gets overlooked. I mean, teams that are rebuilding sometimes, you know, go and chase after high priced free agents that are really not a good fit and not part of this organic growth. And, you know, you saw what Orlando did a couple of years ago, bringing in those players. It's like, 
you know what? Patience. And I'm think, I'm making the analogy between that situation and also carrying it over to the individual situation like you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. And there's so many different dynamics within a team. I mean, look at Kawhi Leonard's growth. You know, when mm-hmm. he came in as a rookie, I mean, people were like, hey, he's pretty good. He didn't have a three-point shot. You know, we just, what we knew of Kawhi Leonard before, before his first, first game as a rookie was this kid can play defense, he's athletic, and he's long. That's all we kind of really knew about him. And, of course, he the, other thing he had going, the other thing he had going for him was landing in the right situation. The, I mean, you, you, it doesn't get any better than the Spurs with Buford and Pop and uh, the whole culture that they have there. It was a perfect arena for him to be developed the right way. Right. And, and it still took time, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you look at his rookie year, I mean, it wasn't like he was averaging 20 points a night and things like that. They were slowly drip feeding and giving him stuff, you know, granted they had Tim Duncan and they were competing for championships, but they would slowly just add stuff to his game. And I think the funniest thing was the first time I read an article where coach pop had said like, yeah, we're, Next year, we're going to hope that Kawhi Leonard can start making more plays out of the pick and roll. And I was just like, wow, that's a lot of faith in a, in, in a guy, you know, when you have Manu and Tony and those guys. And sure enough, the next year, he's running pick and rolls, and, you know, and, and, and making plays out of it. And he's growing with it. It's a process. Absolutely. You know, D'Angelo Russell, D'Angelo Russell landed in a tough situation in L.A. Yep. You know, I mean, you know, the, the Kobe farewell tour you know, was his rookie year. That's a weird situation for a rookie. Doesn't get much worse than that, as opposed to doesn't get much better than San Antonio. Right. I agree. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So there's so many things. So like when we're, we're just so quick to say this guy's a bust and, you know, Markel Fultz now with all the weird stuff behind his shoulder injury and them seeing him shoot left-handed in a practice one day or like we're just, you know, he hasn't even really played a game 100% healthy as far as we're concerned. There's really nothing and to he, judge him on yet. Yeah, and yeah. people just want to label him a bust. And I said, no, guys, I, like, I agree. Well, let's talk about something that's kind of related. Uh, again, we're talking about young players. And this is, um, I'm wondering if the sort of traditional notion, um, and I'm going to cite four players and maybe you might want to talk about them individually, um, of how important is it for a very skilled player who can get to the basket easily um, to develop a, uh, a jump shot. And let me, let me cite four players and let's, let's look at them. You know, there's Ben Simmons, who is an extraordinarily talented player who has no trouble getting to the basket, doesn't have a jumper. Giannis, of course, is almost unprecedented in his uh, range of abilities. And yet people keep harping on the fact that he quote needs to develop a jump shot. Then there's De'Aaron Fox, who's really not a shooter, but is quick on quick on quick. And, you know, uh, defenders play six or seven feet off him and he still gets around them. And then of course there's Lonzo that we talked about whose shot is, I don't know if you want to call it broken, whatever it is, it's not pretty and it's not working. And uh, so is there a difference now for some players, let's take Simmons and Giannis, for example, where, yeah, it would be nice and maybe it would even make them more effective, but really it's not as important, uh, or is it, that they develop that uh, outside shot as we traditionally view for people in that situation? Well, I think when you 
look at Giannis and Ben Simmons, you know, the thing that stands out most for them compared to the other guys you mentioned is just their length, right? And, and their ability to get to the rim in less steps than an average human being or an average NBA player. You know, it's a, from the top of the key, I imagine it takes, they can get there to the rim with one or two, you know, not one, two, maybe three steps. And I think that's something where it's easier for them in that sense. And then there's a quickness level behind it. You can see when Simmons comes off a pick and roll, or even when he's going to take his man one-on-one, he knows exactly where he's going. He's, I'm not pulling up for a jumper. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm, I'm just attacking the paint as hard as I can. And he has the athleticism and the speed to get there and to beat people to that spot, even without a pick, which is really impressive. And the other thing, too, is these guys sometimes are backing up so much, and it's like, because they know they don't have to worry about the shot. But the thing is, if you back up too much in these guys with their length, they can put the ball on the rim without ever even really reaching the, re- the restricted area sometimes. so And sometimes you're probably giving them a, more of an opportunity to get a, build up a full head of steam. Well, I, I, I mean, for me, I think that's, I think it's a mistake to be backing up as far as these guys are, because I think you're just giving them a chance to get downhill and gather speed. And it's like a runway for them. It's like, you know, exactly. you're not going to stop us if you're back there. Where it's different with De'Aaron Fox and Ball is that they don't have that length and they don't have that stride. And let's be honest, too, like, those other two guys are freakish. You know, there's, there's an element of, like, this is insane with, with their ability. For Ball and De'Aaron Fox, who both are good players and, and do a lot more than just, you know, it's not like they can't score. They can get to the rim. They both, they both do a good job defensively. Ball, Ball's rebounding skills are, 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 are really impressive for a young guard. But they need that shot because those guys don't have the strides and, and, and the athleticism as much to get by their defender without, you know, a screen or anything like that. And whereas Giannis and Ben Simmons can get to the rim, I think, at two or three steps, those guys need five or six. So it doesn't matter if the defender backs up. They're going to be able to get to those guys quicker. So I think for those two guys, it really matters having, having a jumper more than Ben Simmons and Giannis. And those guys, it, it'd be helpful for them to – to develop a, a jumper because the other thing too is as you get older, your athleticism goes. So right. at some point you're going to need that. That's going to come in handy. You don't need it right now because you're 20, 21 years old and, and, and you're fine. But when you start to hit, hopefully these guys have long careers. And when they start hitting 28, 29, 30, that athleticism isn't going to quite be the same. I wish I was still athletic as I was when I was 24. And I can't. Re- the, I can't. I can't remember when I was 24. <laughs> well, right. so you know, for those guys, having a jumper would really help them in yeah. the longer run. But as of right now, we're seeing it in their in their play. Like clearly, it's not as big of a detriment as we make it seem. But right. we can see it with smaller guards. So I think the the bigger you are, the more length you have. I think is 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 kind of a barometer of how badly you need it. I want to ask you something about um, teams, sets, and schemes, both on offense and defense. We've seen certain um, sets and schemes 
be extremely successful. And then I have to wonder, do they, is there such a thing as they have a shelf life that teams then catch up to what they're doing and they really need to move on or the refinements, you know, pretty small or is, uh, is it likely that after a year or two or three that um, you have to come up with something altogether different? I'm thinking defensively, for example, on icing, that's just one example. Um, but there's myriad examples on both sides of the ball. Um, do you have any observations regarding, let's call it shelf life? Yeah, so I think on offense, it's not as uh, important. Teams will add wrinkles and little actions here and there to stuff. They'll tweak stuff to fit their personnel. But the Spurs have been running the same place since Pop's been coaching. Uh, Jerry Sloan, who I'm not sure how many of the younger listeners will, will remember, but Jerry Sloan ran the same offense when he had John Stockton and Carl Malone to when he had Darren Williams and, and Carlos Boozer. So, you know, and he had success the whole time. You know, it's, it's a matter of, and mind you, scouts all know these plays. That, you know, they know them just as well as the coaches at that point when they've been scouted as much. There'll be a wrinkle here and there where we're like, oh, okay, that's something new and interesting. But there's not as much of a shelf life in that regard. Defensively, though, there is. I think, you know, we saw it with Milwaukee where they have a very aggressive trapping style. You know, teams can tweak their offense there to take advantage of that style. So being able to have to kind of change it up and maybe go back to it later and, and, and mix in other things. I think defensive schemes, you can, you know, teams will plan how to attack that. And eventually it, that no longer works as well. So, so Milwaukee, was, a, Milwaukee was leaving uh, the three-point corner shot pretty much unguarded, weren't they? And they were starting to have to pay for that. Yeah, and, 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 and a phrase Jason Kidd had, um, which I, I stole from a Kevin Arnovitz article on ESPN um, at the beginning of the season, was like, you know, we want the, the guys to throw balls and not fastballs. You know, we, 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 uh, excuse me, we want to throw uh, balls and not strikes. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the thing, you know. If if the Bucks' philosophy is if when we trap, if we get them throwing a looping pass with our length and our speed, mm-hmm. we should be able to recover. If when we trap and they're able to throw a, a fastball or a bullet to the next the next guy, it's game over for us. We're going to lose that possession. So I think you know that's something where teams can scheme for. Then they know when we get here, they're going to trap. And this is what we need to do. And so that's something where defensive philosophies, you know, have a shelf life. And, and, and it's different in terms of how long each may have. But, you know, it's, it's something that teams can focus in on, especially in the playoffs. Right. Um, I want to ask you something uh, else that's come up uh, quite a bit in the last several years. And that's the whole notion of uh, offensive rebounding versus transition defense. A number of coaches and teams, and I think a, a growing number of coaches and teams, uh, find that uh, it's more important to uh, have a really good transition defense and get back rather than to go after offensive rebounds with multiple players. And that strikes me as pretty different than what we saw not that many years ago where almost every team was focused on crashing the offensive boards. What's your observation there? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, your observation is right on. Um, this is something that has been happening in the league for a while. Uh, to be honest, I, I believe it started with the Spurs. And Coach Pops, you know, always wanting to have at least three guys back on defense, you know, maybe as many as four, and only one or two guys crashing the offensive glass. You know, and that was something where it was a matter of we want to make sure we protect our basket. Spurs kind of philosophy for a while, they were really a defensive team to the point that it was they wanted to play in the 80s. You know, they wanted to keep the score in the 80s, low 90s because that meant they were defending and the idea that offense isn't there every night. So as the NBA is a very much, everybody steals from everybody. Once teams saw that the Spurs started to have success with that, they started to do it. And it's slowly going kind to of become a, if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from pop. Yeah, basically, <laughs> you know, um, well, you always want to steal from the franchises that are constantly winning. So, <laughs> um, but that's kind of led to that that sort of movement. And I think maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, Zach Lowe wrote a piece, you know, about that and, and, and talking about how teams are dropping more and more guys back. What I think we're going to slowly start to see is a trend where more teams are going to start crashing the glass. Like my, my way, like if you're the new Orleans Pelicans and you want to beat the golden state warriors, you need to score. And the main reason why you need to score is you need to keep them out of transition and they're going to run no matter what. And even if you get back, you know, odds are they're going to be able to score in that situation because they're just such a deadly offense. But when you have guys like Boogie and Anthony Davis, you have to crash the glass with those guys because you got to bully the the Warriors that you know that they have their best lineup, their their depth lineup is small. So your advantage is big. So you got to attack that. And so that raises raises a question again. You know, you're saying that in order for the Pelicans to be successful against the dubs this is what they have to do so that raises the question does it make sense and obviously you're always going to play a little bit different against the strengths and the weaknesses of the team that you're up against but does it make sense to have to vary much from your overall philosophy depending on what that opponent is and what their strengths are and who they are and what they do so for example the pelicans when they play the dubs, as you say, this is how they have to play them if they're going to have any chance of success. Well, is that going to work if it's at variance with how they typically play? It's really would seem to me pretty difficult, even though you want to deal with the opponent that you're playing. It seems to me that it's got and, and yes, in the playoffs, you have more time to prepare for a single team. But. To what extent is it actually workable to have that sort of variance depending on who your opponent is? It's hard in the regular season, almost impossible. So I think it has to be your core principles of whatever you want to do. And I think if you're the Pelicans with those two guys, you should want to crash the glass with those guys. And, you know, Rondo's a good rebounder. You know, a good, uh, you know, you want him to crash the glass. You don't want to take those opportunities away from your team being aggressive. But you're right, like having a game plan in the regular season for one team that goes against your principles is extremely difficult. The way I look at it, your regular season, if you're assuming you're going to be a playoff team, or even if you're not going to be a playoff team, you need to establish your principles, your core principles. And I, you know, after you have your core principles down and your team knows them inside and out, then you can get creative. You know, um, I always kind of had a interesting 
notion in my own mind, and I'm sure I stole it from somebody else. So I apologize to whoever I stole that from. The the idea of for me to be able to be truly creative with the playbook or with the defense and and whatnot, I need to know every possible like what's the play. I need to know every detail about the plays. Every what our plan is, our rotations defensively. Because once I know that inside and out, then I could tweak it a little bit and then I can get a chance to be creative. I can improvise once I know everything inside out. And having that ability to improvise is almost a reward after you have everything drilled down. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think that's kind of how teams should use their regular season of we, we might lose this game, but this is our core principle and this is how we're going to establish, this is how we play. We're going to maximize what we do well. And then when the playoffs and you have more time to game plan for individual teams in a, you know, seven game series that has days off in between games, et cetera, et cetera, you can do exactly what you're talking about. um, Tweak it or however you want to um, label it to, to be more specifically accommodating to what you need to do against that specific team. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's where offensive rebounds is going to be a thing. I think we're going to see, more teams crash the glass. I think we're trying to teams are trying to maximize scoring almost to the detriment of defense. And I think slowly we're going to see a shift of, again, teams are going to go back to crashing the glass a lot more. I'd like to ask you one other thing. Um, this is based on uh, something that's been that occurred within the last few days. Um, there was a big to do down in Miami between Whiteside uh, and uh, some of the other players on the team. Uh, the player, uh, a number of the players were critical of him not setting screens uh, in the right way, holding them for the right period of time, setting them in the right uh, method, et cetera, et cetera. And he struck back saying, hey, I'm doing this right. You guys are just not using the screens right. And then in the next game, which, of course, happened to be the streak snapping game uh, right. between uh, Whiteside and the other players, they're all over each other with uh, plaudits and credit. And, hey, you did that exactly right. And he's saying, yeah, I'm glad I did. And I'm glad you guys used it right. Do you have um, any observations more general, specifically to that or more generally on the issue that arose there? Well, for starters, that just proves that winning cures all, right? <laughs> Everybody's happier when you win. Uh, so that's one thing. But it's a really interesting point you bring up, and it's something that screens, you know, when you're setting a ball screen or even an off-ball screen, it's kind of a combination of both the guard or, or the person coming off the screen and the screener are both responsible for several things. So like when you're coming off the screen, you need to wait until that screener's set. Like that's just a common uh idea. And that, and that's where, you know, Whiteside was complaining, saying like I get most of my offensive fouls from illegal screens because these guys are moving before I'm set. And that's kind of an impatience from there. And and that's where he's saying they need to be patient. So also then in the article I was reading that that you sent me from Basketball Intelligence, the the reporter had said he only had had four offensive fouls from screen. So I'm not sure how true his, his number, the number is in his head, but the idea is the guards have to wait for the screen 
And then once the screen is set, they have to use it right. So they got to come off. And the way we used to coach it, you know, when I was coaching junior college was you, the guard would literally put his hand on the screener to kind of create, to make sure there was no room and the defense couldn't go over the top or, or slip through that screen. So there's always different mentalities. I obviously don't know how Miami teaches it, but there's a responsibility of both both people. The, the ball handler using the screen right and waiting for the screen to be set. And the screener, not just setting the screen, but trying to make contact without setting an illegal screen, but also holding it just long enough. And then from there, there are different, you know, the way a defense plays it, whether you slip or things like that. And having great screen chemistry is something amazing. Like if you watch carefully watch Marcin Bortat and John Wall when they're setting a ball screen. Like the, the, their screening chemistry is better than anybody I've ever seen in the league. You know, they, they figure out right away how the defense is playing this ball screen. And then they adjust. And, and sometimes it's as simple as Gortat's not even going to screen Wall's man. He just screens his man because the way the defense is set up and it creates a lane for Wall. And it's, you know, the, the stat that the NBA gives it now is a screen assist. And I, I haven't looked at the numbers or anything, but I'd have to think Gortat's in the top three if he doesn't lead the league in screen assists. And just watching the chemistry him and Wall have, and he's beginning to develop it with Bradley Beal, you know, that's a, that's a screen that's like, this is a communication between the two guys, and they know exactly what the other one is going to do with how the defense plays it. And that's something that, I'm sure Miami hopes that Goran Dragic and Dion Waiters can get with Hassan Whiteside, but there has to be a commitment from both sides to really do that and learn that. Well, now that they've identified it and uh, it looks like they're starting to make progress, that, you know, that could be a a real important component of turning the corner for them, um, you know, from that rough start that they've had. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so critical. I mean, cause you know, let's, let's be honest, Goran Dragic isn't going to blow by people that often, you know, just one-on-one and, and, and same for Deion Waiters. Like those guys need the screens to get open and create opportunities for other guys. So, you know, they, they need to figure that out. And, you know, it's great that they got it on Wednesday. Hassan Whiteside, and this is the biggest problem with him, I think, is consistency. And he needs to be consistent and he needs to bring that every night. And if he does that and those guys are patient, you'll begin to see the heat begin to get a lot more wins. Yeah. So, uh, Mo, we want to thank you um, for, first of all, thank you for your great loyalty and support for basketball intelligence. We really very, very much appreciate that. Oh, I love it. I don't think people understand how how helpful it is for me every morning because there's so many different articles I try to find. And then, you know, I get it in in the newsletter every morning. So I, I, I thank you for that. Well, thank you. Um, Great having you as one of our supporters. In addition, thank you for today. This has been terrific. You're being able to hear and share your insights. I think it's going to be incredibly valuable for our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the jump ball? Yeah, you know, the the jump ball is I I write probably once or twice a week. Uh, I try to at least an article. I post a, a weekly guide now of what's a, what's a, what games are, are coming up that are worth watching. And, you know, once a month of power rankings, I have a, a weekly podcast 
There's also the Jump Ball University, which will help hopefully help casual fans kind of pick up the nuances of basketball that, that they might not know or, or learn terms that they're, they're not familiar with, which would make watching the game a lot more fun. What's so, the best uh, yeah. and what's the best and easiest way for people to stay on top of what's happening with the jump ball? The the best and easiest way is to follow me on Twitter and you can follow me at mode.kill underscore NBA. And because my last name is so easy to spell, I'll help everybody out. It's, <laughs> it's, it's M-O-D-A-K-H-I-L underscore NBA. Terrific. I strongly, strongly encourage all of our listeners to stay current with uh, the jump ball. And as indicated, the easiest way is to do it on Twitter. So that concludes our podcast. And again, our uh, thanks for a very, very enlightening hour. Oh, no. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Just a quick note. Music is from Els Michaels Affair and Caravan. Don't forget to check out our blog, Basketball Intelligence, at basketballintelligence.net. And when you're there, please subscribe to our newsletter. I'm Justin Keonan. I'm Ray LeBeau. This is Basketball Intelligence. Thanks so much for listening. 